Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Joanne Guo. And I'm Sarah Gerber. We are the co-hosts of the Track 2 podcast. Today, we're in conversation with Bronka Angelkovich, a co-founder and program director of the Public Policy Research Center in Belgrade, Serbia. Bronka has a passionate interest in contested realities of the future of work. Her curiosity builds upon extensive experience in developing and managing inclusive programs and policies throughout Europe. She is the lead author and editor of several foremost studies on digital work in the platform economy. Bronka and her team created the Gig Meter, the first instrument for assessing the socioeconomic status of digital workers, launching an innovative nationwide research program about the future of work. As a consultant for more than 15 years, Bronka has been advising international organizations and governments on social protection, active labor market policies, and participation of civil society. She holds a master's in public administration from the Harvard Kennedy School and in international relations from the Central European University. She holds a BA in theory and comparative literature from the University of Belgrade. Well, thanks for joining us, Branka. Thank you for inviting. So we wanted to just start out with exploring when you became aware of this term of civil society and then helping us define it. I always believed in a society of people. So that was my first notion of civil society without really understanding the definition of civil society. And uh, that was when I was really, really little, maybe when I was five, six or seven. I think at that age, I wanted to be an opera singer and I wanted to be politically active. So these two things kind of uh, (laughs) went hand in hand. And why is that? Very simply, it is because of so-called non-aligned movement that was really active and rocking and rolling in 70s, 60s and 80s. And it was really great to watch all these Eastern European, Asian, African leaders debating all these brilliant things like workers' rights, different model of the world, uh, standing somewhere between socialism and capitalism, you know, thinking really about the third way. So that was my beginning. But civil society as a notion and definition entered really late in my life. I worked first as a journalist. Uh, So I covered wars in the Balkans, the Bosnian War, the war in Kosovo and so on and so forth. And I worked for independent press. So that was something that um, was hard to do at the time. And then the notion of civil society really became present in my life through my work. Eventually, I started exploring this field uh, through my master work. And uh, my master thesis is really about civil society in the Western Balkans and why it failed and led us to the war. Uh, While, for example, civil society in Central Eastern Europe really succeeded in a peaceful transformation of, for example, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, and Poland into today's developed democracies. Thank you for that explanation. I have a seemingly secondary question, and that is about your master's thesis and where you studied for your master's. Oh, that was at the Central European University, which was just established at that point of time. First in Czech Republic and then in Hungary. It was heavily supported and actually conceptualized by George Soros. And then you also spent some time at Kennedy School. Oh, yeah, that was much later. The meantime, between Central European University and Kennedy School, I was spending some time in Oxford. 
I did my research on Middle East and thinking about societies in Middle East and Turkey in particular. Then I moved to Turkey, doing my PhD there. And in the end, this long educational journey ended up with the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's really helpful. I think it was only yesterday that we were interviewing another alum from Harvard Kennedy School who told us that he didn't realize it was Harvard until he got onto the campus. So he, he <laughs> applied. And I mean, this was back in the day. This was before Google. So, you know, he sort of landed there innocently. He just was following his North Star and realized once he got there, oh, wow, this is Harvard. So I'm quite sure that you were aware of where you were headed at the point you crossed the Atlantic. Trust me, I was. Yes, yes. <laughs> you were on a mission. But I think it's just helpful to understand that lifelong learning journey that you've taken because it also, I think, speaks to just this ability to think not only locally from your region, but also with a more global view and, and this willingness to learn on different continents. Not everybody wants to, to change countries and learn in a completely different language than their first language. So I think that's, that's really inspiring and just helpful background to have for this particular conversation. Thank you. I mean, I was always a curious person. <laughs> so I think yes, <laughs> that is what brings people to different locations. If not physical, today you don't need to be on a physical location to live in different world. If you want to learn about different cultures, different people, you ought to be on different places. You know, so that was it. And education is amazing a tool to do this thing because you meet people of similar but different backgrounds. You have common point of discussion, which is usually the topic you study. So it was yeah, really, really good fun. And I hope I'm going to do it again. I guess uh, Harvard Kennedy School has a school for retired professionals. So I hope at one point of time, I'll probably go back. A return. Yeah. Spend some time there again. You are one of the few people, I think, that sees innovation in every corner of your life, everything you touch. So I'm really interested in how you've come to this particular place today um, at the helm of the Public Policy Research Center in Belgrade with a focus on innovation, but specifically technology and the future of work. Oh, uh, yeah, it's a good question. All these journeys that I took in last couple of decades led me to this one place because you have through education, through meeting new people, through living on different locations, you have amazing insights. And then you try to understand what is commonality and what is the difference. So it is always easy to talk about differences. It is much harder to talk about commonalities. And at one point of time, I understood by spending some time in L.A. and in California that technological revolution is amazing. I mean, it's taking place, but nobody really talked about it. You know, all foundations and charities were dealing with something that is like the agenda of the 20th century, in my mind. And nobody really discussing how digital revolution impacts on societies, on labor and economies. I went back to Serbia, I went then short after to Turkey, and this covered the same thing. People live in new era, but they don't see it. And uh, that is why I thought that it would be at least an interesting topic to investigate. We tried to find few thinkers of a similar kind, and we managed in doing that. 
we took their work as a foundation work for the Public Policy Research Center, and we started in 2017. And everybody was thinking that we were crazy and there is you know, nothing to research there because we're talking about something that is not happening yet. Fast forward, long story short, today we are where we are. So innovation, the future work, remote work, this is already a history. So we are probably going to talk about new things like in a year time. When we discussed remote work a few years ago, everybody was like, wow, what the hell is this? Now you can bet that at least 60 or 70% of our populations know what remote work means. If they don't live it, at least they know what it is. So it's much easier to explain. Yeah. So thinking about that, how are you seeing entrepreneurship specifically shifting and changing and how we understand it and its role, I think, within entrepreneurship itself, but in civil society more broadly? What have you been observing? It's a hard question because there are different layers to this question. First of all, entrepreneurship is an important thing because innovation is tied with curiosity, with being able to do new things and also being able to fail in doing these new things and then start over and over. So entrepreneurship is not only about economic model, it is really about the state of mind. At the same time, I don't believe that entrepreneurship and civil society can really go hand in hand because entrepreneurial ideas eventually lead to profit making. And civil society is really about values and about changing the world for the better or worse, but hopefully for the better of all its uh, members or of all members of one society, hopefully many societies. So this needs to be distinguished, in my view. And entrepreneurial today has this notion, has in itself this good notion, which is like innovation. Let's talk about social innovation. Let's talk about how we can change the world. But at the same time, it is also narrow-minded and it's very selfish in itself because it only talks about the interest of an individual, of a enterprise, and even if so, discusses the benefits of society at the third or fourth place. And also through the lenses of entrepreneurial culture, which again puts interests, individual interests at the first place. So that is my understanding where we are with entrepreneurial and civil society notions. They can go hand in hand to a certain degree, but actually and eventually they need to have a separate journey. I believe that civil society ideas at the time were really, really creative. What they see today is actually lack of lack of innovation, lack of thinking. So that's the problem. One of the purposes of this particular series was to expand the definition of entrepreneurship. And one particular area that I feel has sort of been left behind when we talk about entrepreneurship in the contemporary sense, that's a very old craft, is writing. And so I'm really interested in how you view writing and whether or not you feel that writing belongs in the entrepreneurship category, or if that's more of the arts, or is it civil society? Where would writing fit in this spectrum? Well, you know, it's a skill and it's creativity at the same time. Writing is like music. So you can have a skill and that would be for me entrepreneurial talent. And you can write for entrepreneurial purposes. But if it is really about innovation, and if it is really about changing the world, then it is art, then it is philosophy, then it is really like 
on that further away horizon because that is innovation. You know, innovation comes from really broad thinking, being able to imagine things that are completely inimaginable. Good. So that helps to clarify the craft, the skill, values. And I personally would agree that writing is more of an art when you get to the the creative side, right? In the same way that filmmaking is an art. But the way that creative writing operates in at least the United States is through this publishing model that requires that a person put in a tremendous amount of personal work and skill and then the the payoff is uncertain. And yet it is this ability to exchange ideas that I think is so attractive in my mind of putting this into entrepreneurship simply because this idea of entrepreneurship is that you're you're exchanging something. You've created something. It has some value to someone else. And there's some form of exchange. You can unlock so many other ideas, so many other forms of imagination, simply because you read a great science fiction novel. I think in a way, as we explore this uh, series on, on entrepreneurship, we've been looking at innovation and a lot of times labeling it entrepreneurship. But under this lens, I think that everything we do is is touched by certain skills and how we apply those skills is how we title ourselves as professionals. Writing is something that everybody does to some degree in most professions. This is a good writing. It's only writing. Right. You know. That's right. <laughs> so it doesn't mean it's creative writing, for sure. Either. It doesn't mean that it's the exchange True. of ideas or that there's any philosophy behind it. True. We could get into social media, that's a different thing. But right, right. writing as a way of earning a living has for a long time depended on taking these personal risks and investing in something that is an idea and then bringing it to fruition through publishing. I think that's also changing, but I appreciate just having the opportunity to share that with both of you. You know, I wanted to tell you, talking about innovation and creativity and philosophy, let's say the school or the schools that I attended at the time were very much influenced by Greek philosophers and, you know, Plato, <laughs> Aristotle, and they believed that philosophers should do only one thing, think. Mm. Artists should do one thing, produce art, not really think about their income. So I know that today these notions <laughs> are totally far-fetched and cannot be so much present in, in this century in which we live, but at least we can dream. Why not? You know, artists should be really artists. Mm -hmm. Philosophers should be able to do the work of thinking and uh, be relieved from thinking about their income, you know, how much work they need to sell in order to be in their free time a thinker. Also, this new time brings to us, it is dual careers or whatever number of careers that we have. One is for money. You need to live of something. And the other is also about your passion. Many people do not have time to pursue their passions any longer because they simply need to find a way how to put food on their tables. And that is today's world also. You know, digital revolution brings amazing things, but also brings these things into our realities. I feel like we could go further on that. And I feel like you want to, Joanne. 
Dance with something. No, actually, I was just thinking about your personal journey with filmmaking Mm -hmm. and sort of your experience, just as Bronca is referring to her educational experience, Mm -hmm. calling upon these different models, sort of like role models for a balanced life in a way, things that aren't necessarily have nothing to do with capitalism and earning Mm -hmm. lots of income, but just like the ability to use your mind and to be a lifelong learner and, and how you, you've had your own experience in, in your artwork. And I think it'd be helpful for you to just give a little bit of background. I'm not really sure where to start. I feel like that was a broad stage. Where should I start? (laughs) How about starting with non-traditional schooling, Mm -hmm. then moving out of state for university? And then what prompted you to start a film studio? Yeah. So non-traditional learning. I was homeschooled for most of my K through 12 experience, although I transitioned into doing concurrent enrollment and attending a community college in high school. So you can get dual credits, high school and college mm-hmm. at the same time, which was a really good fit for me. I was a pretty self-directed learner. And so having more freedom to self-direct my process and even so I did all the research for understanding how I needed to like reach the criteria necessary to get my high school diploma and all of those things. So I, I I had that as part of my process of creating the journey. And so that's my, like, I think foundation for how I approach so many things is that sort of self-directed learning process, which after school. So then I went went to college and did my undergraduate in fine arts and English double majoring and came out of that at like a really, you know, interesting time in our world which is in the midst of the 2008 crash. So not a great time to be looking for work. And that, I think, was to my advantage. So I was like, well, what do I do? Self-directed learning. Like, that's that's my solution to, like, trying to find a job. And that led me to being like, I want to combine these things I had in school that didn't necessarily say, like, filmmaking. Like, that's not what, like, jumped off the page. Like, this is the next step. But it just eventually became clear to me that I want to use this really powerful tool that was going through its own technological revolution at the moment, that that moment. That was just the transition to digital. And basically do something similar to what you do with writing is tell stories, be able to create worlds that maybe otherwise wouldn't be created and see what kind of powerful influence they can have. And so I went back to the drawing board and created my own little completely crafted master's program in film with all these online resources and books and stuff like that and created like a year-long program for myself (laughs) and then decided I needed to have a thesis project at the end. So that's how I got into like my first more serious film that ended up uh, doing really well and, and sort of taking off and having its own life. So yeah, I don't know if that was what you're going for, Joanne, but that's, that is that, that journey in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah. This is really interesting. It's fascinating. It's a very non-traditional path for sure. Absolutely. I think it shows what's possible when you're being true to what interests you as well. Like you didn't have anybody telling you what to be when you grow up per se. And you didn't necessarily have anybody insisting that you follow a particular framework like, okay, this is what you're good at. And so you will go on and you will follow this professional track and it will lead to X, Y, Z. But I do think that you've made some unique worlds through story Mm -hmm. that otherwise would not have existed because it required creative imagination and seeing things from a different perspective that also may not have been accessible had you been under a particular line of 
of thinking, let's say, in a particular style. So this really allowed you to sort of express and follow your own interest. It's definitely not for everyone. No. There are certain people who would not do well with this. Yeah. Yeah. Who are an exception. It also is this one of the things that I can look back now on that I didn't necessarily see at the time is the advantage of being an outsider in the industry I was trying to get into. And so that gave me a lot of creativity because I didn't know the way it's supposed to be done. And when you don't know the way it's supposed to be done, you just do it the way that makes sense for you. And you're like, okay, this works. And that's really hard to be able to do if you're like already inside the box that you've been given. It's a lot harder to break out of it than to have never been in the box to begin with. So I feel like I had a real advantage in that way. Yeah. Bronca, I think it's you amazing. have a fair amount of experience. Yeah. Both of you, both of your experiences are amazing. You have a fair amount of experience working on the edge in emerging industries. I mean, it's, it's what you're doing with the future of work and technology and also labor philosophy. You bring all of these things together. But I'm interested in learning more about how you deal with ambiguity in that zone. Because when you're in an emerging section, there's no one to tell you that it's necessarily wrong because it hasn't been done yet. But there are certain ways that people either cope with or adapt to the unknown. And this is a question I've been wanting to ask you for a long time. How do you deal with ambiguity? I guess, again, a simple and short answer is through uh, a value system, because you believe in certain things. You believe that world should be tailored in certain way or certain ways. You know, for example, all people are equal. And not only that they're equal, but they should also have decent lives. What does it mean? That means that they should be having decent pay. What does it mean? That means that they should be having contracts. That means that they should be having access to this and that. This means also that people have time to educate themselves. So these things belong to one value system. And that is how I cope with any unknown territory. That is how I travel through the unknown. I understand that there are different points of view. I'm totally okay with this to a certain extent, but as a thinker, but also as an activist, I believe that the world I'm promoting or the values that I'm standing behind are the ones that are much more attractive to majority of humanity than the ones where one group has it all and the other group needs to struggle all its life. So, so that is, what was it, like a short answer? <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I didn't go for a longer one. But that's it. Value system. And that is how I think many people deal with unknown and ambiguity of different territories that they simply meet or face in these journeys that they undertake. So, for example, I'm just going to give you one example more. When we discuss the future of work, and we see many online platforms engaging online workers on different locations, it's an amazing thing. I mean, it's it should be cherished. But at the same time, these platforms are using loopholes and void in international labor systems and in the national labor systems and giving nothing to these workers apart from maybe decent pay. And that's it. All the rest, all issues of security that humans need in their lives Humans are built that way are actually on these workers. And I see it in Serbia. 
I see it in US, I see it in Europe, probably I'm going to see the same thing in Africa or Latin America. I have no doubt about it. So when looking or assessing the platforms from this standpoint, I can say, yeah, right. I mean, they're doing an amazing job, but it would be even better if they would be more prone to, let's say, considering themselves as employers and uh, provide decent working conditions to the people who work for them. So that is my standpoint. So that is how I deal with the issue of ambiguity of platforms in today's world. Maybe it's an old fashioned view. But this is, again, the value system that is built in in myself. And that is a standpoint that I'm applying to the work that I'm doing. I really appreciate the long version, not the short version, because we followed a chain of progression there. One, I asked you about ambiguity. You responded and told me about your values. And then you applied that to an existing area of ambiguity that's emerging, an emerging technology. And I think that as we continue to have this discussion about the future of work, and as you say, we're already living in the digital first age, right? There's something else out there beyond this. We need to be operating from a place of values because we have algorithms controlling almost all of the communication that happens today. Yes, we choose to to join up here on this call at four o'clock Pacific time. However, there are algorithms tracking every single call we make. It knows who we talk to and what we've talked about and what we would like to buy or what we're going to have for dinner. And so I think coming from that perspective, we need to have a set agreed upon value system or at least some form of ethics that people will agree are the minimum starting place for these innovations and that we're not going to try to disrupt the value system that makes it possible for people to live in an equitable, just society. I mean, this is this aspiration that we continue to work toward. And I understand that there's been this very long-term struggle between liberty and equality and that they're constantly fighting it out. But like you, I agree that we need to start with values. Yeah. It's making me think about pulling civil society back into the conversation and how, Joanne, we've identified values as an important part for how we've talked to our different guests across the season. So I, I am curious to hear Branka, from you more about how values do play a role in civil society and vice versa, as Joanne's outlined this need for some sort of grounding in a framework that helps us move through this increasingly ambiguous future that grows at a rapid rate because of technology, that we move so much more quickly in terms of pushing that edge of the known and unknown How do you see that interaction between civil society and shaping values and vice versa in these different spaces where we need to have more agreed upon ways of understanding things that are really impacting our lives at a rapid rate? Oh, this is going to be like a Star Wars series. (laughs) That is how I see it. I mean, I think that the battle is already going on. Civil society as a notion depends on how you understand civil society and from which location. So that is something that is really important. So let's say that in European environment, civil society is always viewed from this kind of French Revolution standpoint, equality, liberty, and so on and so forth. And when you have other civil society, for example, hunters associations, I mean, they belong to civil society as well. 
Nevertheless, in the places where I come from, civil society is intrinsically linked to this notion of the French Revolution and values of the past. In some other places, it is actually both. We can call those left values or right values, but civil society is comprised of all the values that one society has in itself. It cannot be one civil society. It is civil society as a whole. So that's the whole point. <laughs> and then because of it, you have so many opposing views and understandings what civil society is today. And it is not the same on different locations. Simply, it is not. We always believe that civil society brings progressive values, that it is on the side of humanity. But what we see today, I'm not really sure. You know, I'm not sure that this uh, is really true. And I think that the first civil society that believed in values at the time also changed a lot. Mm. It lost its own impetus. It lost its own thinking. It kind of remained trapped in itself. This other civil society that is more into individual gains, that is more into selfishness of this new 21st century digital paradigm, that is more into the amazing wealth that you don't know what to do, but you're not interested in changing the world for the better. These other civil societies are very much present in many locations that I have a chance to see and visit. So if you ask me, I mean, long story short, I believe that this struggle is going on. Values are somewhere, but it's very hard to say what they are. And there is a time for new defining in which kind of societies you want to live in. It's like what kind of society you want, you know, and you start from yourself. I don't need someone to preach about it. I just want myself to be clear with my ideas, like, okay, so what is the environment that would make me happy? Ideally, of course, that you cannot get it all, but at least you can kind of try and thrive to make such society feasible and reality one day. So I think it's a high time for this discussion to be opened again and to really see how it is going. And at the same time, it could be very global because what digital revolution gives us, it gives us good sides and bad sides or both at the same time. So let's think that this is a good thing that come out of it. So we can discuss it more broadly with different groups. Although I said in the beginning that civil society means different things for different locations. However, because of new times, I think that increasingly we have a space for discussing it more globally and find a new paradigm. Mm. Yeah, it seems like there's more and more similarities between people in different physical contexts because of digital capacities that create sort of a new space for how we even understand something like civil society that would have been much more defined by geography because of necessity. Like that was the way in which we lived together. But we have another space, which at the top of our call, we talked about avatars and living somewhere else. So this is, this is pulling that back in. Like, yeah, there's, there is another actual space where these questions come up in a familiar and way they have before, but also in a new way. And I'm curious, Absolutely. yeah, I'm curious how you think then talking about that and value systems and how we bring those things together, where does innovation play a role in this, what you've identified as like a new, hopefully a new opportunity for talking about what this can look like? 
Innovation is not only in, let's say, technical innovation in terms of what we have as tools and other means of facilitation of dialogue. You know, it is really in dialogue itself. Innovation, in my view, is about people's interest to hear others more than before. I think that we all ended up, before the pandemic, so much entrenched in our own small lives. Let's put it this way, you know, whatever the life, small life is, like this COVID-19 actually gave us an opportunity to discuss things again and globally, because all of a sudden we realize that health issues are global issues. We tried with climate change, but it was really... It was a long journey. It started in the 90s, you know, and the discussion is going on for a rather long time, like two decades or even longer. We're discussing Mm -hmm. how this is impacting on all of us. But one pandemic of six months long changed everything. And because of this change and because of technology and because of insecurity that all of a sudden emerged and surfaced, I think we are going to be more than ever willing to discuss the society, global society we want to live in, and also this impacting on our local societies. Because for sure, we understand that we are all interconnected today. If I asked you like a year ago, are we interconnected? Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe we are, maybe we are not. Let's have a broad discussion. No, today, one question, one answer. Short, yes. We are interconnected more than we maybe even wanted or ever desired. But that's the fact of life. So it's a great platform to do something about new society. A so, new social contract. Uh, yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. this is the innovation in itself. That is how I see it. You know, innovation kind of brought innovation. <laughs> maybe mm. it was not looking for this kind of innovation. When you started right. the digital revolution, I mean, people were thinking about enterprises, Google, Amazon, whatever, you know, let's make a garage band, which would pay off 10 years later and become amazing enterprise. But this is also the outcome of this, of this work, global society. I think it's interesting to draw a parallel back to the beginning of climate awareness, whether yeah. that's 20 years or 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter telling people to put on a sweater and lower the thermostat and how that just, that was not okay for most Americans. I promise I don't really have an agenda here other than thinking about this new social contract and how we need something in response to the challenges of the 21st century. And within that social contract, there should be values that focus on what we hope for the future, creating opportunity, rewarding work, not only reversing this trend of increased economic insecurity, but also the impact on the environment. And I want to believe that everyone is in this together and that if I were to phone up some family members right now, if they would feel that we're all interconnected in one system, unfortunately, I don't think that's true. And in part, it's because there have been decades in the public education system in America that have not been about values-based living. They were about supporting a particular type of corporate capitalism that makes no room for this kind of social contract. In fact, it's a threat. And it, it will be very hard to get to the heart of that discussion even in the thick of a pandemic, even amid smothering wildfire smoke, 
some people have really decided through the delusion of this brainwashing that these things are not connected. And, and I don't know what will require their awakening. So just as you said, when we were talking about emerging areas and innovation, you just have to build. And I, I want to bring everybody along. I'd like to see consensus. And at the same time, you can't reason with unreasonable people because the person who becomes unreasonable in that scenario is you then at that point, right? So, hey, I am not going to try to convert you if you don't believe in climate change and you're not of the mind that everyone should wear a mask. We're probably not going to have a lot in common. And that's okay because I still care about you. And that's where I am. I mean, it's, it's really challenging to think about how important it is to design a social contract today for the next thousand years. But unfortunately, I'm not sure that, that people are ready to embrace that. But Sarah, I want to hear, you know, I want to hear you weigh in as well. And I'm not being dystopian, I'm just trying to be a realist, being a realist. Yeah. My immediate thought goes to the thing that I'm always thinking about, which is what are the stories that we're telling? What's the narrative? And when you talk about people who have chosen a certain narrative that is impacting their decisions, a narrative that says, I don't have to wear a mask, or that comes from a story first, that then has other pieces and components that lead someone to say that this is, this is better for me. And so I, I think for me, the thing that I come back to is like, where, where is story and narrative playing a role in starting to set the groundwork in the space that we can start to have better conversations about a new social contract or about new ways of integrating values into our technology that's going to take us into the next phase of living on this earth? That to me is really important. And I think it's fascinating that we just happen to talk about something like science fiction writing. Like there, there is something to creating the kind of world that we can have the discussions for what's going to come because the stories are playing a really, really big role in how people enter the space because they are entering the space. They're entering the conversation with a story. And sometimes those stories have facts attached to them. And sometimes they do not. <laughs> I like that doesn't actually matter whether they do or don't. The story can have the same level of power. And so how how we engage with that is I'd love to hear your thought on that, Bronco, because like that's one of my favorite spots to talk about a lot of this stuff. But um, yeah, it's it's a good point. But somehow when we discuss social contract in the past, I'm thinking that this new social contract is not going to be discussed only among ourselves. It is going to be discussed among new generations that are coming and who just experienced pandemic. And for example, my friend's children see things differently than their parents. And that is the whole point. So I'm thinking that they're going to write a new chapter for all of us. And hopefully we will be there to help out. Mm. But the thing is that I'm counting on this generation. And somehow we, because of the work that my center does, we easily align with these newcomers to the markets, to life. And they are in their 20s, sometimes even, in, even younger. Uh, of course, we discuss very particular themes, which is like technology, labor rights, economy, 
public policy. But if we were to move and push the agenda and discuss, let's say, social contracts, which is a new thing, for them, I think they would be eager to jump on this topic and do something about lives in that society, but also about their lives. Because I don't think that they're happy with the way we steer economies and societies at this point of time. But nobody really asks them, and there is very little space for any discussion of this kind. So if you ask me how I would do it, I would, let's say, scout for young thinkers. It's again, people start to think when they're five, you know, they don't necessarily start to think when they're 30. So if you're a thinker, you're a thinker at very early age. So there is plenty to be shared with almost everybody when you're 10 or 11 or 12, and even more when you're maybe 16. So I would like to hear these voices. That's it. This has to be our next guest. We need to bring on a 10 or 11 year old. This would be fun. Let's ask them what they want. That's so interesting. And it's a really good point. It's a really good point. So, and you know, second point with social contracts, social contracts are there to be broken. It is like a marriage, but then you can break a marriage, but you need to start from scratch again, or you decide to stay outside of the marriage. But now the question is, what do we want? Do we want to stay in our societies outside or we want to be inside? If we want to be Mm. inside, then we need to find ways how to build this marriage again and how to work on it, how to build trust and take as much different voices as possible into this marriage. And then again, it is going to last only for a decade or two or three or four. And that's it. I mean, no longer time we can envisage. It is constant work. That is what I'm saying. So, Mm. you know, you don't make a social contract and then you forget about it. No, it's a constant work. But it seems that we have forgotten about it because we believed that things are perfect and nothing can really endanger us. So we have it and foundations are solid. And now we know that they are not. So let's start from scratch again. And that's my Mm -hmm. second take on social contract. And there is no third. (laughs) I think that's part of the entrepreneurial mindset, innovation mindset, like this ability to be a beginner, to be able to start fresh, to jump back into something, I think is part of that mindset, which is interesting to connect it to designing social contract or just revisiting it that there, there's a cyclical nature to it. Behavioral economics. Brilliant work has been carried out in that field. And many questions asked why humans cannot plan longer than a few years ahead. And even this is like long-term planning. And this is us. I mean, this is how we are built. That is our nature. So we really think short-term, mid-term, mm-hmm. utmost. Long-term, no way. Because it is of no interest to us. We don't stay on this planet that long. So Mm. why bother? If we stay the longer on the planet, which probably is going to be the case, maybe social contracts are going to be more important. And then also the issue of security, speaking of health, for example, is going to be even more important. Because longer we live, more nourishment we need, more different kind of treatments we need. We need stable economies also. So there are many, many questions coming out of aging as well. All things that were true before, they just were true for another generation. So we weren't as concerned about it because those problems are the same whether we're there to witness them or not. 
But yeah, it is different if you're having to think about it from a much more personal, like this will impact my life if I'm going to be living longer on the earth. But I totally agree with you. I see that societies are very much polarized at this point of time, almost everywhere. You know, it's like when you read the news, you believe that you're actually reading about one same country on this planet. And you think like how that could be. But because of this polarization, we need to find new ways. Either we end up in struggle, which usually is unpleasant and has bloody outcomes. And I doubt that for example, at least three of us would like to see that. And I guess millions and millions of people are not in favor of this kind of outcomes. Or we try to find an, ways how to build bridges yeah. among different groups in societies in which we live. Yeah. So radical times actually require radical thinking. You know, So either we end up mm-hmm. in a war, which is a disastrous outcome for everybody, or we find ways to make a new peace. That is what we need. And it's going to last Mm -hmm. for some time. And then let's see if some other people are going to renew it. Thank you for that very complete synthesis. I mean, that, that really brings in everything we've been discussing. And one thing that stands out to me as I was listening to you, Bronca, is how when I first met Sarah, she was really interested in this question about legacy, like what her legacy was going to be. And part of that had to do with the a leadership fellowship she had done. And so I was thinking about different levers that we've used over time to help the human mind think about the future and your choice today and how that might impact tomorrow. And so that's one way of sort of pressing on the psychological lever. We can get people to maybe change their behavior if they're aspiring for this particular outcome or if they want to do something positive for others. And we're expecting that if they reached a leadership level, that they must have some empathy and compassion for others. Perhaps not. That said, I feel like that is one way to start the conversation. And the other is to consider what you touched on much earlier in the conversation about Greek philosophy and how the philosophers were just supposed to think. That's fascinating to me for a number of reasons. (laughs) One, I want to know who was making their meals. But two, I'm really interested in how that resulted in certain systems and structures. Somebody wrote that down. Somebody took those ideas and turned it into a framework and a plan. Because part of the challenge that that I think came up in this conversation is we're going to have many different perspectives on reality because we've been living in a system that is very unequal and people have different ways of coping with that. And some of that includes personal delusion to reality. So not everybody is going to help shape this social contract, but there are people who are capable of taking in all this information and creating a values-based agenda that is based on humanitarian principles, as we sort of touched on as well, that then could live on as an active contract that is passed from, from one generation to the other as a form of legacy. In other words, every generation takes ownership knowing that the social contract is theirs to new. And I'll give you one quick example of how we've failed to do this in America. With the war on poverty 60 years ago, first of all, wrong approach. War on poverty. Poverty already is a war. And earlier, Sarah and I were talking about there's the poverty that you feel that's economic, and then there's the poverty of spirit that leads to almost the same outcome, and then they just become a vicious cycle. So a lot of times in philanthropy, you will hear people talk about the war on poverty and how those policies failed. And I always think to myself, 
Well, of course you need to tune it up. It's not like you set it and forget it. It's not a washing machine, folks. You really need to help it out. So I would love to hear both of your, <laughs> sorry, I had to be funny there. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how we could change some of our thinking today to set up the next generation to believe that they have an active role to play in forming and maintaining a social contract. To have them on board in these discussions of the future, unlock their potential because they're young. They can really see the future in unspoiled ways. They're not poisoned with us yet. So they can really give us a clue and take us to a next level. But, you know, you don't ever see kids as philosophers. I mean, honestly, why would you engage kids in such a heavy conversation? And honestly, again, I met kids in my life who are amazing philosophers, and they were philosophers at the age of six or seven. The way they asked questions, of course, you don't have a discussion that is of the same structure, but you just give them little, and then they start asking you questions that are amazing. And you really start to rethink is you need to reset yourself. So that is why I think it is simply engaging and being respectful to the ones who are going to inherit this planet that we are really kind of living in. I'm not saying mess, but OK, it's not the best place to be at at this point of time. So how fair is that? It is totally unfair. And who is deciding about them? It is us. It is even older cohort of politicians who are in their 70s and 80s, but actually soon to vanish from this planet. So this is completely asymmetric. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. So that is my answer. And then this also requires changes in education and so much more around this particular group of people who are under 18. You know, when they get to university, as Sarah put it herself, it's already too late. Society already did its work and its impact. You need to start as early as possible when they really start to think at the age of five. Okay, you can have two of mine. <laughs> and then, luckily enough, according to Serbian legislation, we can have older than 15 working on intellectual projects, which we do now at this point of time, and it's fun. But I'm telling you, we're engaging them on this kind of regular business of ours. It is like, okay, economic, labor issues, and so on and so forth. But let's do something more because we're talking about their lives. Yeah, it seems fitting because in some ways, this was a very similar conclusion that we got to with our other interview earlier this week, too. With Henry DeCio. We have an interview with the gentleman, and he's absolutely passionate about youth empowerment and youth having the opportunity to see themselves as change makers in the future, that they can take their initiative and that they can apply it to the world and they can make something happen. And we are sort of feeling our way through the darkness a lot of times. And so much of this is a giant leap of faith into the future and not knowing. I mean, so much of our life is really dependent on the strangers that we meet along the way, right? I mean, it's huge. It's how both of you at one point were strangers in my life. And yet here we are talking about social contracts. Yeah. I believe that at one point of time, life really leads you to these new islands, which are people that we meet and who are really similar to you in a way. So that is at least my experience in the last number of years. It's just meeting amazing people from all different locations. It's so phenomenal. It's already a blessing in itself. 
So when you meet these individuals, these amazing minds and personalities, you really believe that things can change for better. And that there is hope, that you really can live a society uh, where hope prevails and not fear. Mm. So talking about legacies. So, you know, what do we do? I mean, it's leaving something behind us, hopefully good. Yep. I totally agree. Leaving society, leaving this world behind in a state of fear is to leave it in poverty, whether that's leaving your family or your loved one or your children or your nieces and nephews and your friends and neighbors. If you leave this world in a state of fear, then you have left it impoverished. You have not lived to your fullest potential. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. With you. Thank you so much, Bronca, for sharing this time with us. It's been so much fun. It's fantastic. I feel like we could go for ages. We would be called, I guess, idealists. Oh, guys, it was it yeah. was a pleasure. I mean, I really enjoyed this conversation. I really hope it's going to be fun once you edit it, once you distribute it. Oh, it will be. I think we covered everything. There we go. We've got a day. <laughs> Absolutely. So, innovation. Innovation ended up being a big topic for this conversation, which... I think was to be expected, but it also had a lot of unexpected reflections on innovation. I think we have to start on dialogue as a Mm. form of innovation because we think about innovation as being a technical outcome, a tool. Dialogue is a tool, but it's also creating, there's also an act involved in dialogue where you create a space for people to represent different ideas and perspectives and ways of operating. And in business as a frame of reference, decision-making really is sort of rooted in dialogue. And dialogue makes makes really clear how certain assumptions and stereotypes or past experiences are related to a person's deductive reasoning, how they make a decision about what they're going to do or judge some particular situation, some risk for something. So I think it was uh, was interesting to hear Bronca talk about dialogue being a form of innovation because it's not necessarily framed that way here in Western culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely struck me as something that's coming from someone who is looking at the world from the context of Europe and Eastern Europe in particular, because it sounded very collaborative, which I thought was interesting itself, like a more collaborative way to talk about innovation. And yet she has a whole rich history rooted in the power of dialogue to change futures. And and what I mean Mm. by futures is like to change course and to open up new possibilities that otherwise would not have existed if someone hadn't bothered to sort of take apart what the meaning was, what an assumption was built on. And just from like cultural narrative differences, we we have a lot of stories around innovation as the lone inventor. And while that could be true, also too often isn't actually accurate. And so I thought it was just interesting as a way of thinking about the role of collaboration in just the idea generation. That's what I heard in dialogue as well, is how you go through that exploratory process and what happens when people do that in a collaborative environment, like what comes out. I think that's another way of not talking about this. 
I think it's not the only way. Like when you're talking about dialogue as innovation, I think that's it's also what you're talking about with this. Like, what does the exchange of ideas look like and more f- maybe formal settings where you're bringing a very different backgrounds and contexts into a space? And what does that create? And, and that's one of the ones that it feels like there's a lot more to explore in it. And I'm still digesting it and thinking how that has intersected with a lot of things that we've covered in this season and probably will continue to cover in future seasons. I was thinking a little bit about conflict. If you're stuck mm. between one and two, you might be in conflict. We might have a dilemma. Right. But another one of our guests focused a lot on courage. Mm. And I think that uh, courage is part of the necessary ingredients in dialogue when you know something's going to be uncomfortable, right? To have right, the courage right. to show up. But more than that, you need the courage to withstand conflict that will allow you to reflect on some of your deepest assumptions and and strongly held values and consider how maybe those values and beliefs have limited you in your past. This is that's part of the not only the track two journey, but also the the journey to being a fully mature leader. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to be able to one understand your strengths, skills, and tactics that you can use, but also you have to look beyond formulating some quick technical solution and trying to solve a deep organizational issue, and and sometimes just step back and examine competing commitments or competing loyalties in your own head. Mm, yeah. Your own yeah. community, your own organization. Yeah, that makes me think also about Bronca's response to your question around how she handles uncertainty and ambiguity, the unknown. Mm-hmm. And that for her, an important part of stepping into those spaces is being grounded in her set of values. What I'm understanding from what you're saying, too, is this idea that that's part of how she sources her courage to step into those spaces. But she has this value of holding the third way that allows for her not to be stuck in those values. It's not like stuck in those values, but stuck in an understanding of those values, let's say, or not. Mm, or stuck in a perspective. I, yeah, I don't perspective. Know, like, right. Because some of this is like what I said, questioning your commitments or your priorities is not the same as being stuck in values per se. But I think yeah. on the whole, a lot of people make decisions based on a personal set of assumptions that are often guided by some gut instinct and understanding the why and how of those assumptions and how to manage them results in better outcomes for a dialogue and also better leadership. Yeah. And so that's going to be my contribution to this part of the discussion on track two. (laughs) (laughs) Better leadership when questioning your gut instincts. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Hmm. I feel like there's without maybe knowing it entirely explorations around that in, in various episodes in this season, which is interesting. I think everybody in this season took action and acts on a bit of intuition and gut instinct, but also approaches others with sort of a, an open mindset where they're, yes. they're not, they're not threatened by somebody being different than them. Mm-hmm. And they move toward and not away from things that they're unfamiliar with. They're curious. Yes. yes. And noted curiosity as well, even from the interview with Bronca too. Yeah, that that reminds me of 
something Bronca said at the very top of our conversation that it was really beautiful. It was the third way. And I, I just think that's so powerful and such an important, I don't know if it's skill, value, capable. Like I think it fits under all those things. It is so important in general, but I feel like a particular urgency to its importance right now. It's a thinking strategy. Yeah. It's not allowing yourself to be locked into either or black and white thinking. Right. It's a more yeah. constructive way of analyzing a situation. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. I'm Joanne. And I'm Sarah. Join us for the next episode.